don't we go ahead and pray before we get started? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that uh, we learn from both the good and the bad examples that we find in Scripture. And we pray that you would uh, encourage us with the truth, help us to recognize the danger and uh, destructiveness of sin. And just pray that you give us understanding as we look into your word this evening and pray for your blessing and uh, guidance and the meeting that will follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we're going to look at 1 Kings 16, but uh, before we start reading there, I just wanted to uh, share a few pictures with you and uh, talk about the concept of a child being like uh, his father, a son being like his father. It's not always true that children end up living like their parents. There's sometimes a good kid will come out of a bad family and a bad, fa a bad kid will come out of a good family. Um, but sometimes there are patterns that are uh, evident in the children that are characteristics of the parents and we get phrases like uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree from such phrases as that. Um, so you can see a couple pictures here just the father and son doing different things together. Um, uh, it's my personal favorite there. Um, I assume it's father and son, but uh, um, today we're going to see a couple of kings who are father and son. And in the case of these kings, the likeness is not good. It results in severe sinfulness, and these are two of the worst kings in Israel's history. So um, we'll see the pattern really starts with father and is followed up with son. And son actually is uh, even worse than the father. But let's look at uh, 1 Kings 16. And we'll start with verses 21 down to 28 and read about King Omri. So it says, Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. And Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Terzah. He bought the hill Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might, which he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son became king in his place. So notice first of all that we have Omri, the, the father that we're talking about here uh, in this example, and he starts with some confusion. You notice in verses 21 and 22, there's confusion. It says the people of Israel were divided into two parts. I thought with a business meeting, this was a perfect text. Talk about being divided into two parts and how to uh, resolve that. Now, 
Um, or I thought about actually picking for songs, the fight is on, you know, the, the, you know those kind of things. But, um, but seriously though, uh, there was division here in Israel, which is interesting because if you remember last week, or you're familiar with the passage, we talked about what happened was Omri was the commander of the army, and he overtook uh, Zimri, who had uh, killed the previous king, and, and uh, basically Zimri was... Uh, fortified in his uh, uh, capital city there, and Omri went and overtook him, and essentially Zimri committed suicide, uh, set his house on fire and stuff. So it would make sense that Omri would be the logical choice and was the commander of the army, but yet there's division about it for some reason, and half followed one person and half followed Omri. Um, but yet it says the, uh, there's a decline that happens of the followers of Tivni, essentially in 22, and, and, and eventually he ends up dead. Interestingly, we're not told how or why or what the exact cause, if it was fighting, if it was heart attack, or, or we're not told. But it's interesting, the scriptures do not call out Omri for being at fault in that. Um, many times, like we saw the previous week, the kings were getting judgment because of their sinfulness in wiping out the previous kings, but that isn't mentioned here with Omri. So Omri, Omni, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Omri becomes the king, and we see then the standard chronology talking about his reign, verses 23 and 24. It says it was in the 31st reign of Asa, king of Judah. He became king and reigned for 12 years. So this is roughly... 885 B.C. to 874 B.C. that he is the king over Israel and he reigns for 12 years. Um, and it says there that he spent six years at Terza. Terza is where they moved the capital to. And then verse 24 is all about this hill of Samaria and what's the point of all that. The, the idea is that they moved the capital to Samaria. So from now on, essentially, Israel, the northern kingdom, will be referred to by the name Samaria. So that is uh, what is uh, happening there, and, and that's what Omri does. But notice his character. Right? What's his conduct like as king? Verse 25-26 says, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he did evil. That's standard, right, for the northern kingdom. It's just kind of the way they do things, right? But notice about him it says he acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So he has committed unprecedented evil in the nation of Israel, as if that would seem possible, but he, he has, and it's gotten worse than it was in the days of Jeroboam and uh, all the kings since. Um, so he is taking wickedness to a new level in Israel, and we're going to see the next king does that even more than his father. So both of these kings go to unprecedented levels of wickedness in the nation of Israel. So Omni, Omri does evil. He does more evil than all that were before him. But notice it makes clear again that he also walked in the way of Jeroboam. Verse 26, in the sins which he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel. Um, it's interesting that with these kings of the north, that is repeatedly emphasized that these kings of the north did not steer the north away from the evil that Jeroboam started in this false worship. 
So then we have at the end there, verse 27 and 28, we have the Chronicles, the standard formula at the end to say these things about his life were written. I, I would just point out one little note there in verse 27. It says, The rest of the acts of Omri which he did and his might which he showed, are they not written, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's interesting from a secular historian perspective, Omri is actually recognized as a significant king in Israel's history, having accomplished certain things. But for our writer, those things aren't important. That's not the point. It's not about the buildings that he built, the uh, wars that he was involved in, the, the expansion of property. That's not what matters. It's the spiritual condition of these kings and how they lead Israel either into or out of sin. Um, and in this case, he led them into new levels of sin. And then we have in verse 28, the change, the change over to his son. So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, became king in his place. So we have the transition here, father to son. And they're very much alike. Omri committed sins that were unparalleled previously. And Ahab's going to do that as well to an extreme. So hopefully you're all familiar with uh, Ahab because you are students of the scriptures. And you know that Ahab gets extended coverage um, in Kings. In fact, the rest of 1 Kings is essentially about the prophets Elijah um, and Elisha at some point doing battle with King Ahab and all of his wickedness. So um, we won't get into Elijah this week, but uh, Lord willing, next week. But um, So Ahab, familiar king because you know he's a wicked king and you know about his wicked wife. Um, so let's just work through King Ahab and the start of his reign. What we see here is a chronology again. Uh, when did he take over? What happened? How long? It says, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. So uh, this would be about 874 B.C. to 852 B.C. Um, Ahab died, I think, about 852 B.C., as I understand. He reigned 22 years. Interestingly... Asa, who is the king of the south, if you remember, he was king for 41 years. And Ahab now is the seventh king of the north since Asa took over. So seven different kings, and Asa will be the next one to die. But uh, seven different kings in the northern kingdom during the time of Asa. And Asa was, according to 1 Kings, a good king. Um, but... Ahab was the exact opposite. Notice his character uh, was completely corrupted. And let's notice how the wording takes place here for Ahab. This is very uniquely written to describe how bad Ahab is. So verse 30, starting there, it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So his father had done more than those before him, and he did even more than his father. And in the case of Ahab, it's going to give us a little more insight into some of the things that Ahab did. So let's notice what it says about Ahab. Verse 31. It says, It came about as though it had been a trivial thing 
for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So the beginning of things here, it says about Ahab is pretty bad. Notice it says he treated. I, I think that's the idea here. He treated this egregious sin of Jeroboam as a light thing, as if that were not that big of a deal, he went even well beyond that. As if that wasn't evil enough and perpetuating the false worship that Israel already had going, he did even worse. Now notice it says, first of all, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Now the name Ethbaal means Baal lives. So it's not like Ahab was marrying this girl and he just woke up surprised all of a sudden that she wasn't a believer in the Lord. <laughs> he, he knew what he was getting into. Now it's not clear whether his father Omri and all of his wickedness arranged for this marriage or if Ahab was totally complicit. But he was getting, as we know from the rest of the scriptures, Jezebel is the classic wicked woman, right, named for a wicked woman, um, he's getting a horrific wife here. And, and then it says, essentially it sounds like he is uh, immediately immersed in Baal worship. Baal is a fertility god, so there was a lot of immorality involved in the worship of Baal. So this is a perversion uh, beyond what had been previously experienced in, at, at the executive level, I should say, in Israel as far as making that the state or official religion. But notice, notice how it continues. Um, it tells us in verse 32, He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So if you remember... In the northern kingdom, they had two places of those idols being set up. You remember that? One of them was in Dan, which was real far in the north. And the other was Bethel, right? Um, and they set those places up. But neither of those places were the capital cities. Here, what Ahab is doing is, he is putting the false worship right in the capital city... And what's one of the primary reasons for that? Because his wife is one of the biggest advocates of it. So he's establishing this false worship in the capital city, and he's bringing in worship. We're told in chapter 18, if you look at chapter 18, verse 19, about uh, Jezebel and her provision for the false worship. Notice what it says there in uh, verse 19. It says, Now then... Send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So she is the big promoter of the false religion. And as we also know from uh, knowing the scriptures, uh, Jezebel's really the one that wears the pants in the family, Right? Um, do you remember that whole situation with Naboth, uh, the, his vineyard? Uh, Ahab wanted this vineyard, and so Naboth says, no, you can't have it. And 
Ahab goes home and whines and pouts and moans, and his wife says, don't you know that you're the king of Israel? I'll take care of this. And she totally arranges for Naboth to be lied about and then killed, and so that he can have that. Uh, and we see, um, even after Mount Carmel with uh, Elijah and the, the prophets of Baal, and that great scene where the fire comes down, it's Jezebel threatening to kill Elijah. So, certainly a horrific choice of marriage here, and she it becomes really a huge promoter of the false religion, and, and Ahab, at best, is just passive about it, but um, we see that he is stated to be involved in this worship as well, so I don't think he was just simply passive. She was perhaps more aggressive, but it is taking false religion uh, to a new level and trying to essentially make that the primary worship throughout Israel and squashing worship of the Lord. So this is an unprecedented, unprecedented level of wickedness. So as an illustration, uh, one, one author I read put it this way. He said, Jeroboam's state cult, so the, the false worship throughout the state or the, the, the nation, was like drinking polluted water. But with Ahab, it's like drinking raw sewage. Neither is good, but clearly one is worse than the other. And in conclusion, just one more detail about Ahab it gives us at the end of the chapter. I'm sorry, we didn't read 33, but that's more false worship. It says, Ahab also made Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings who were before him. Emphasized a second time how wicked he is and did more. But verse 34, it's a, it's a verse you may figure, you wonder, how does this fit into the story? And I think it just illustrates the characteristic of Ahab and his rule in Israel and what that was like. So let's look at verse 34 and see the example of construction that takes place under the rule of uh, Ahab. All right. So verse 34 says, in, in his days, that's in the days of Ahab, Hiel the Bethlehite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. If you remember back into the book of Joshua and the conquest when they first went in there, Jericho was destroyed and Joshua said, whoever rebuilds this city is cursed and he will pay essentially for that with the loss of his firstborn, setting up its foundations, and the setting up of its gates with the loss of his youngest son. The idea is the foundation is the beginning of the city, and the gates are like the doors, it's like the last thing you put in when it's done. So he did this to his own destruction. So how does this relate to Ahab? And I think the significance is, it shows that Ahab and his administration has zero regard for the word of God. And they did this in defiance, disregard for what God had said would happen to those who did this. And this type of behavior would typify how Ahab would rule in Israel. Complete disregard for the word of God. 
So in conclusion, just a, just a few thoughts. Um, what might we take away? Again, we are amazed as we think about this that God incredibly for, put up with these people for so long. Ahab is the most wicked that there's ever been, is outright starting a, a new false religion and trying to promote that and squash the worship of the Lord. And yet God puts up with them. And as we said, Ahab ruled from about 874 to 852. You know your math, it's 722 when Assyria comes in and takes over Israel. So it's 150, 130 years before the nation is ultimately destroyed. But clearly the life of Ahab, as we'll see as we continue, is setting up the destruction of Israel. And yet God's amazing patience and forbearance with him and the nation during this time is, is incredible. Just illustrates the patience and forbearance of God. I believe one of the reasons why God does also delay this judgment and punishment is God is also very gracious to give people opportunity to repent. He gives people opportunity to repent. God is gracious. And what we also are going to see as we go further as well, that in spite of the power of wickedness and the prevailing uh, presence of wickedness in that nation, God still preserves some people for himself. Remember Elijah and his response to God, I'm alone left of the prophets and they're trying to kill me. And God says, I've preserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God's amazing grace in preserving a remnant we see again is his faithfulness to his people. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you, though... It's discouraging to think about the wickedness of mankind and how prevalent it is. And even in our day, we see so many people doing wrong and wicked things and that even getting worse over time. And yet we are thankful that you're in control, you have a purpose, you preserve your people, and you do also give people opportunity to repent. So we thank you for that and help us to be diligent, to be praying for people to repent. And we do pray, Father, you would bring change in our country, bring uh, revival, that there would be many people saved and even people in leadership uh, making significant changes for the gospel uh, in our country. We uh, pray that you would help us, though, to continue to be faithful, whatever happens, and to continue to seek you and walk with you and do what's right. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.